The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the head of this entity that we call the church. And again, the church, not a building, a place where we go, but rather the body of people that God has called out from the world and saved by his grace through the blood of his cross and now born us into his family and called us saved. That is what the church is. And the Bible tells us that it's Jesus that is the head of the church. He authored it, meaning it was his invention. He bought it with his blood. He's building it by his spirit and his work in the world, saving people one at a time. And it exists for his pleasure. The entirety of what we call the church exists for and through Jesus Christ. Now, the New Testament is very clear that it is possible for a church or for the church to become something that God never intended it to be. What God intended the church to be is a body of people who know God and enjoy God, and he knows them and enjoys them. God intended the church to be the salt and light in the world, that which makes a difference, that which preserves from corruption, that which brings light and insight so that uh, people can be the visible and tangible um, expression of God's redemptive way. That's what he wants the church to be. Paul calls the church the pillar and the ground of the truth. And so the church is intended to be a place where the truth of God is upheld, lived out, expressed and magnified in such a way that it can be known and seen by the outside world. And God intended the church to be a medium or a channel through which the Holy Spirit can pour his blessing and make his power available to a world so that we can be witnesses for Christ to the lost. And that is what God intended the church to be when he made it and authored it. Now, what the church can become and what the church does often become, rather than being those things, is first of all a moral expression or a moral extension or a moral option for whatever culture a church finds itself in. So perhaps those in a society or a culture that don't want to give themselves to the sins of that culture, that want to hold on to a form of morality, the church can become just an expression of that morality, missing the point and the power behind it. A church can become just a proponent of spiritual ideas or spiritual ideals that lack the substance and power. Like Paul wrote again to Timothy, and he said that the days will come when they will have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. It will be outward. It will look like something. It will have a name attached to it, but it will be void of the real meaning of what God intended it to be. The church can also become a creative enterprise, a platform that can be used for self-expression and the glory of man wherein we can simply put our creative, spiritual, self-righteous talents on display and build an audience for those that would have an appetite for those things. And the church can also become, sadly, a cult of personality or a platform to deify, if you would, gifted men using 
the invisible God as a means to draw people to themselves. Those are all things that the church can become that Christ never intended that his church would be. And throughout church history, from the time that the church was born, even to the present day, every movement of God that he has authored upon the earth wherein the church was revived or reborn, if you would, they've started on that first list of things, but sadly over time have morphed into that second list of things, always starting by the pure work of the Holy Spirit to be what God made it to be, but changing ever so slowly, but ever so surely by degrees into that which he did not intend, nor does he desire. And that happens. Now, when that happens, that a church goes from being what God wants it to be to what he doesn't want it to be, the result of that is that the Holy Spirit quietly and without any announcement at all leaves the building. He just removes himself from the presence of that church or from the presence of that movement and he allows it to continue going on in its form or in whatever it's doing, but it becomes void of his presence, void of his power, void of the life of God and the church loses its salt, it loses its light and it loses its witness within the world. But the Holy Spirit will then go somewhere else and he'll start something else that bears what Jesus intended for the church to do, to be. Now, that shift between what God intends and what the church becomes happens in many different ways. And it always happens very subtle and it happens very slow. But one of the most common ways that that happens is that the central figure in the church or of the church shifts from being the person of Jesus Christ as the Savior and the head to being the pastor or the human leader or human instrument or personality that God used to author, birth, or strengthen that movement or that work. And that can happen on a large level as a movement or it can happen on the local level in just a regular church body is that Jesus as the head, Jesus as the one who's worshipped, is replaced by the personality or the presence behind the pulpit. Now, that's exactly what began to happen in the church in Corinth just a few years after it had begun. Paul had come in. He had preached the gospel in a godless society. A church was born. He spent a year and a half there laboring among them establishing a good work, a solid work, a spiritual work, a valid work. And then he left, as was his custom, and he would go to another region or another area and start something else. But other pastors and leaders were raised up or came in from around or their messages were were Skyped in or whatever uh, what would happen in those days, written in. And the people in the church began to elevate the human leaders in place of the person of Jesus Christ who created the church body. And the results of that were beginning to show themselves within the church in Corinth. And thankfully, there were some there among them that were wise enough to write a letter to Paul and say, Paul, you need to address this because what's taking place within the church is fragmenting us. We're being divided and our strength is leaving and the Holy Spirit is being grieved and quenched. And so they saw what was happening and had the wisdom to let 
Paul in. Now, the most immediate consequence of that pulpit personality tendency that the Christians had there in Corinth is that they began to become divided amongst one another. Because the personalities of the leaders were different and the people were adhering to those leaders, the result was that they were no longer able to see eye to eye with each other. Well, Peter says it this way. Paul says it this way. Apollos preaches this way and puts his emphasis on these things. Well, we want to just stay with Jesus, others said. And so they were becoming fragmented and you saw the power of the church diminishing. Now, there are certain environmental conditions in which the Holy Ghost thrives and there are some in which he is suffocated. And one of the environmental conditions that suffocates the person of the Holy Spirit is division. When there's a lack of unity, the spirit is grieved. He's frustrated. And it's only a matter of time before he'll leave. On the contrary, when there's unity, there's the potential for great spiritual power because God loves unity and the Holy Spirit loves to move when he sees people unified. And so there are consequences to what was taking place in Corinth and it's those that Paul is addressing. The consequences, as much as they are collective in that they grieve and frustrate the whole body, there are also individual consequences. That is this, is that if you, even in the present day, find yourself in a position where your connection to God is some human leader or some human pastor, and, 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 and he or she or they stand between you and Jesus Christ who saved you, then that's also going to have consequences within your life. And that's what Paul is addressing in these first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, the consequences that the individual Christian will carry or pay should they take their eyes off of Jesus and place them onto someone else or build the foundation or build their Christianity on the foundation of a man rather than on Jesus Christ himself. And so in our study last week, the first consequence that Paul addressed was that if your faith stands in the wisdom of men, then you will be void of the power of God. Your life will not change. You won't experience the dynamic of God's work within your life in the way that you would if your eyes were exclusively on Jesus and your leaders had their proper place. So the first one is that you'll lose the power. The second one is what do we look at tonight? The second consequence is that you will not experience the wisdom of God. And so as we move on from verse 6 onward through into the beginning of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is going to plead with them concerning the second forfeiture that they are allowing because of their putting their eyes upon men and taking their eyes off of Jesus Christ. Now in the first five verses of the chapter, the Apostle Paul explains to them what his motive was, what his method was as a leader among them so that they wouldn't get their eyes upon him. Let's look at those first five verses just to catch the context of where Paul's going with this. Notice in verse one, he says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined, meaning that he made a specific purposing within his heart and mind, 
not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but rather in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Pause right there for just a second. Paul the Apostle says, I had to purposefully place my intellect, my charisma, my persuasiveness, all things that Paul had that we see him having throughout the New Testament. He had to purposefully place those things on the back burner and bring to them a simple message spoken in simple terms, humbling his bodily presence so that he would not be impressive to them when they looked upon him. And he declared unto them the simple gospel. And he says that the reason why he did it that way in verse 5 was so that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that when there are results within your life and within your heart, because of the things that you heard, you won't be able to say to your family members that it's because of the persuasive, charismatic, eloquent, wise man who preached at the synagogue last Sunday. Because there would be nothing about Paul that they would be able to express that was impressive enough that people would come and listen to him. They would say, I don't know what it was. He was simple. He was base. His words were simple. There was nothing about him. He was short. He was wearing simple clothes. He had a hooked nose. He was scarred up and bruised. He was trembling as though he was scared out of his skin. And he spoke these words in such simplicity, but they did something within me that was so real and genuine and powerful that I knew I was hearing something from heaven, from the borders of another world. And what happened in me as I heard those words was supernatural. And there's no other way to explain it. And Paul said, I purposefully ministered in such a spirit among you so that your faith would stand in God's power in your life and not in my impressiveness that was the example that paul gave and the reason why he gave it is because he wanted to be as a leader an invisible servant that brought the people to christ and not to himself so paul is saying i purposefully ministered among you in such a way so that you wouldn't look at me and say i love paul's god I did it so that you would look at him and you would say, he's my God. That's the reason that I'm among you. Well, the question that remains on the other side of this is you say, well, Paul was with them for a year and a half. Did he preach nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified? Was there no other substance to Paul's ministry other than that? Each week he would just declare again the simple gospel for a year and a half and that's all that he ever did. There was nothing more. It doesn't go any deeper than that. It's just Jesus, believe the cross. That's it, it's over. That's where we stand, that's where we live. No, of course not. And so Paul's gonna tell them that not only is there more than that, but there's a world more, a vast world more for you to know, for you to drink up, for you to walk in and live in and experience that goes beyond that. But that can only be experienced in its proper context, and when you are in the right place before him. And so he goes on in verse 6, and notice how he answers that question. He says, how be it? We speak wisdom 
among those that are perfect. Now the word perfect that he uses there does not mean that you are sinlessly perfect or that you've arrived or that you are now everything that you're supposed to be and free of all sin and perfectly righteous in the standing of God. No. The idea among the perfect is that you are complete. And anyone that has put their faith in Christ because they've come to him through the blood of the cross, you are, in the eyes of God, perfect. Now you say, well, that's not what I see when I consider what's going on inside me, and it's not what others see when they look at me. No, I understand that. I'm in the same position as you when it comes to that. But because of Jesus, and because we're in Jesus, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And so in God's estimation, he already sees us as perfected. And so the moment you give your life to Christ and you're born again, that's who Paul is talking about. And so Paul says, once a person comes to Christ, he says, at that point, we certainly do carry things further than simply just Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, we do speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Yet, he says, he qualifies it, not the wisdom of this world, nor the wisdom of the princes of this world that comes to nothing. In other words, I don't stand before you with in my hand the bestseller from the Christian top 10 book list or from the world's top 10 book list and expound to you how the wisdom of those that are in the world lines up with the wisdom of God in some way. And if you just apply these principles that are seen in this book or in this way or by this sage, then you too can experience the wisdom of God. He doesn't say any of those things. That's not the idea. Now understand this, that for the Corinthian Christians and for the people that were in the city of Corinth, wisdom was huge. I mean, if you think just in your mind where Corinth is on a map, it's right next to Athens, the capital of Greece. It was the capital of human philosophy. And they lived to talk about the latest wisdom the latest philosophers. They spent their time listening to the great orators. That was what they were all about. It was true in that day, but it's been true in every day, in every age of life. That's been kind of the the pursuit of man is to find wisdom. We do it in our day. Today, what do we do? We look for wisdom. We want to know who knows something we don't know, who has what we want so that we can do what they do and hear what they say and we can become like them. Isn't that exactly what Eve did and fell for in the Garden of Eden? What did Satan say to her? He said that this is fruit from a tree that is desired to make one wise. And so there's there's something within us that's drawn to this. We want wisdom. And Paul is telling these Christians, he's saying, listen, there is a wisdom that comes from God that super excels all other wisdoms, but know this, it is not on the same plane as the wisdom of this world. And nothing that you can look for or search out or hear or learn or experience of wisdom in this world can compare with the wisdom that God gives. He says, we do not preach to you the wisdom of this world or the princes of the world because it comes to nothing. But, verse 7, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The word mystery means secret. And if you wanted, you could circle the word mystery and close by it somewhere. You could write secret. And then he says, even the hidden wisdom, and you could circle that word hidden, and the word is concealed. Now, doesn't that pique your interest? When you hear that, the secret 
wisdom. The wisdom that's been concealed. The wisdom of God. You can have the wisdom of God. In fact, I am certain that if I wrote a book and I called it The Secret Wisdom of God, I could sell millions of copies of it. Because there's something about that combination of words that does something in the human heart. We go secret, hidden wisdom of God. Now that sounds good. If you had that, man, the glory, the splendor, the wealth of Solomon, all of that would be yours. You would, be, you would have your ticket. But it's hidden. But it's concealed. Only a select few can have it. It's not out there for everyone to just grab it. No, 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 no. Look what he says. He says, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Do you see that? This hidden, concealed wisdom is not out there for the sake of us wishing we could have it, but knowing that we never can. But rather, God has set it out and he's ordained it for our glory, meaning that it's for us. God has provided this in some way that we might benefit from it. It's not a secret to the Christian, or it's not supposed to be. It's actually given for us. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2 says this. It says, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it is the glory of kings to search out a matter. And the Bible tells us that we are a kingdom of priests, that God has made us kings and priests for himself. And God has concealed and hidden wisdom, but he's done that for the sake that we might search it out, that we might experience it. Now notice the contrast that that it's a different wisdom from the wisdom of the world in verse 8. He says, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In fact, the very evidence, Paul is saying, that this wisdom is not held by those in the world and that they know nothing of it is clearly demonstrated in the fact that they crucified Jesus. It's impossible to crucify Jesus if you have the wisdom of God within your life. We'll come right back to that in just a minute. Well, I know the question that you're all thinking. You're saying, how good is it? How incredible. I mean, what is the riches the richness of this wisdom that God gives. Paul says it in verse 9. He says, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. Now, how many of us have heard that verse quoted in the context of heaven? I think every one of us, right? And it's absolutely true that that applies to heaven. When we see heaven... It will be beyond anything that we've ever imagined, anything that's ever even entered into our hearts. But that's not the context in which it's being used here. It's being used in the context of the wisdom that God has made available to you and I for life in this world. And he's saying that the wisdom of God so far exceeds the wisdom of this world that eye hasn't seen it, ear hasn't heard it, and it's never even entered into the most intelligent heart the things that God has prepared for those that love him. The wisdom of God is so incredibly glorious that there's nothing else like it in all the world. Well, the only question that remains is, how in the world do we get it? 
How can we have this wisdom? Because I can look at the wisdom of the world and I can say, I'm not even as wise as those whom we would consider wise in the world. So if there's a wisdom that excels and exceeds the wisdom of the world, then how can I be a possessor of it? Is it possible or is it something that I'm just going to chase after for the rest of my life? My wife is reading a a book with our kids. Uh, It's a Dr. Seuss book, and I think he was a theologian. Because if you really look at some of the things he said, they're, they're actually quite profound. One of the books that she's reading with them is called Sala Salu. And it's about this incredible land where everything is better. And if you can just get there, there's no troubles. Life is just easier in Salasalu. And so the story is about this creature that is on his way to Salasalu, and everything goes wrong while he's trying to get there. I mean, there's obstacles and opposition. There's just impossibility after difficulty as he tries to find his way to Salasalu. And page after page, he's just tripping up. He's stumbling. He's not making it. And then finally, at the very end of the book, he comes to the door. And there's a big old door with a doorknob and a keyhole. And there's someone there standing outside keeping the door. And he finally makes it to Salasalu. And the greeter at the door says, welcome, welcome to Salasalu where everything is easier and everything is better. And the man's beat up and he's torn up. And he says, I finally made it. I'm here. And the doorkeeper says, there's only one problem. There's a key slapping slippered. And when you try to put the key in the lock, watch what happens. And when he puts the key to the lock, the key slapping slippered comes out and knocks it out of his hand. And he says, no one can enter because no one can get the key within the slot because we can't remove the key slapping slipper. And you read the book and you say, yes, that's life. That's my life. I'm always trying to get to the place where it's going to be just a little bit easier and it never comes. It's never easier. And I know what you're thinking right now. I'm selling you the wisdom of God. I'm telling you that there's a wisdom that excels all wisdoms. And you say, yeah, sala salu. It's out there, but I can never have it. It's concealed and it's hidden and it's just outside my grasp. Yeah, I believe it exists. No, 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 that's not the case. You can have it. And Paul tells us how you can have it. And he tells us right here. How do we have it? Number one, and it's actually in verse eight, is that you must know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is absolutely impossible for you to taste the wisdom of God unless you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the reason why it's impossible, apart from him, is because he is wisdom personified. There is no experience of of it apart from Christ because he is the very wisdom of God himself. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom... In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And then he goes on to say, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, the great apostle Paul, again, speaking of Jesus Christ, says that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And apart from him, there is no wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, the verse that we read at, uh, at the end of our study last week, Paul says, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 
He is the very wisdom of God. And so apart from him, it's impossible to experience the wisdom of God. And that's why in verse 8, Paul says, if they had known the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Because they crucified the very wisdom that would have helped them and blessed them in their lives. Apart from Jesus Christ, you'll never know the wisdom of God. If you sit here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you might as well go to Barnes & Noble or log on to your Kindle or your Nook and you just buy every single book on the front of every bestseller list that exists out there and buy every self-help tape and go to every seminar that you can get your hands on and follow every how-to-get-rich-quick guru that's out there and buy the rich dads. You better buy every one of those things because that's the best you will ever be able to do in this world. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you cannot have the real wisdom that will come to something. The second thing that is imperative if we are to experience the wisdom of God within our lives is that we be living in the presence of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Notice what Paul writes in verse 10. He says, but God has revealed them unto us. Remember what was hidden and concealed back in verse 7? Paul says it isn't hidden and concealed to us. It's been revealed to us, but it's revealed by his Spirit. Because the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. The Holy Spirit is one part of the divine trinity. The Holy Spirit is God in spirit form. And the Holy Spirit has been given to every person that's received Jesus Christ, opening the way for you to have the revelation of God's wisdom so that it can be applied and enjoyed within your life. He says, for what man, and here's his logic behind the Holy Spirit's presence giving us his wisdom, knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. It's a very logical argument. Paul is saying the only person that really knows you is you because you're in you. Everyone else can know about you and people can get to know you to a degree, but no one can know you to the depths of you because they can't get inside of you no matter what they try to do. And Paul then applies that to God. Likewise, no one can really know God Accept God, because unless you can get into the mind of God and into the heart of God, then you can learn about him, you could grow closer to him, you could know something of him, but you can't know all of God because you can't get into God. But what Paul is telling us here is he's saying what God has done is that he has imparted to us his spirit living inside of us so that not only can we know about him intellectually, but we can comprehend him spiritually and deeply and know him in a way as though we were him. Now, I did not say that we're him. I said that he's given us his spirit. He says, even so, the things of God knows no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received, Paul said, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, so that we might know the things that are freely given to us in God. 
Now, the reason why before you came to Jesus Christ, the word of God, the Bible, made no sense to you is because you didn't have the spirit of God living inside you. I shared that last week. I told you about how I threw the Bible at the wall and said, this is stupid. Why would anyone give their life for this? It doesn't make any sense. And it didn't make any sense to me. But the moment I received Christ and his spirit came into my life, I remember I opened up to Romans 1.1 and I read the whole book of Romans and it all made sense. I could say, yeah, that's why. My goodness, those people live on my campus. And I could go through and see it and it's like a light switch was turned on. Do you know what it was? The Holy Spirit came inside and it opened up the mind of God so that through the word of God, I could know the wisdom of God. And that's what happens. God gives us his spirit so that we can know the things that are freely given to us by God. Ephesians chapter one, again, in verse 17, the apostle Paul, as he prays for the Ephesian church, he prays for them that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The Holy Spirit in our lives imparts unto us the wisdom of God as God opens up his heart and mind to us so that we might freely know him. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the prophet Isaiah calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of wisdom, and that's a part of his office and of his operation and of what he does. And so in the presence of the Holy Spirit and his presence within us, we can know the wisdom of God. And then number three... So knowing Jesus Christ, being filled with God's Holy Spirit, and then number three, it's in the revealed, inspired, anointed word of God. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, which things, you say, what did Paul teach for a year and a half? Which things we also speak? Not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches teaches. Now, what does the Holy Ghost teach? Second Timothy chapter three, chapter two, no, three, verse 16. It says that all scripture, what is it? Is it two? It's three, three, 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspire is like where we get the word, um, as, like, like to breathe. That's what the word literally means. In the NIV, it says it is God-breathed. It's given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it is profitable for doctrine, for instruction, for correction, for training in righteousness that every one of us might be thorough and complete, lacking nothing. Peter says that the word of God was given not by people who were writing down their ideas, but men of God who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the things that we have in Scripture. These are the things that the Holy Ghost teaches. And Paul says, that's what we spoke among you. We didn't give you fables and stories and the philosophies of men. We didn't quote poets and plays and all of that. He said, we spoke unto you the scriptures because those are the things which the Holy Ghost teaches. And that's where the wisdom of God is found. And so he says, um, it's the word of God which the Holy Ghost teaches. And, And you say, okay, well then, How does it work? Because I read the Bible and I don't feel like I have the wisdom of God. Or I read the Bible and I don't understand the things that I'm reading. So how then does it work? Notice what Paul goes on to say. He says, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 
In other words, it's not that I just read the word of God once. And as I read over it, the Holy Spirit just illuminates the entire world and spectrum of God's truth and wisdom. And now I just have it. No, it's a comparing of spiritual things with spiritual. Meaning it's something that I continue in and I continue to lay down lines of truth within my life as I continue in the word of God day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year. I continually go over it again. And what happens is that as I pick up things and as God teaches me doctrine and his ways and they become a part of my life and they're coupled with my experience as I walk around in the world, I then go back to passages which I've already read in the past and new things are opened up, carrying with them all that I've attained as I've read other scriptures from other parts of the Bible, bringing them into what I now am reading again. And that translates into new and greater experience in my life, which translates into a growth in the wisdom of God coming to fruition within my life. That's how it works. Paul says we compare spiritual things with spiritual, speaking that which the Holy Ghost teaches, that is the word of God. And we grow and we continue. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, um, I don't know where it is. I wrote it down. It's, yeah, it is Colossians 3.16, isn't it? It says, let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom. A lot of 316s tonight. That's good. Read John 316, especially if you don't know Jesus. You need that one. I'm amazed personally at the number of Christians that have such a small esteem for the Bible. They'll give themselves to so much and they'll seek after so much, but yet the one place where the wisdom of God can be found, they'll neglect it. And they'll put it off and they'll say, I don't get it. Or that's for Sunday in their Bible. It just collects dust and they don't immerse themselves in the very source that God has given to us that we might experience his wisdom. Well, the question that we would have is why is it that the world cannot know the wisdom of God? How is it that the wisdom of God is so segregated from worldly wisdom that they can't experience it? Notice in verse 14, he says, but the natural man, that is the unsaved, unredeemed person, receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So why can't the world know the wisdom of God? Paul gives us the two reasons right there. Number one is because they're foolishness to the natural mind. I want you to think about this for one minute. Because what is the wisdom of God? If we take the scripture and what God teaches as to how it is that we can have a blessed and full life, what does he say? He says, love your enemies. The wisdom of God says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who hate you and spitefully use you. The wisdom of God says, esteem others better than yourselves. Who does that? The wisdom of God says, die to yourself, your sin and your desires. The Bible says that to give is, to, is better than to receive. The wisdom of God says that to find your life, you've got to lose it and lay it down. The wisdom of God says that to be the greatest, you must become the servant. That love must be unconditional if it's to be pure and real. That we're to live by the law of forgiveness and forbearance and patience. That your greatest strength is found in your weakness. I mean, just think of the Beatitudes that we're looking at on Sunday mornings with Pastor Bobby. Blessed or happy are those that are humble. 
those that are meek, those that mourn. The wisdom of God flies in the face of the very nature of the world. It doesn't make sense to those that are in the world. So someone who doesn't know Christ hears those things and they're foolishness unto them. I don't love my enemy. I want to crush my enemy. I don't esteem others better than myself. I put others down and elevate myself. That's the way. That's how we get ahead in this life. It doesn't make sense. And the reason that it doesn't make sense is what Paul says at the end of verse 14. He says it's because they are spiritually discerned. And that word discerned means scrutinized or investigated. And what that means is this. It means that someone who does not have the spirit of God within their life cannot see past the initial action of the wisdom of God. Meaning that they hear those words, love your enemies, and they don't have the insight to be able to see the domino effect of what that does. They hear the words, esteem others better than yourselves. And all they think of is the humbling of themselves, the abasement, the self-abasement that it takes to do that. And they can't see beyond it to how that wisdom is going to play out into the future. They're spiritually discerned. They can't see it. It's absolutely invisible. It's It's concealed to them. It's impossible for them to carry the wisdom of God to a useful conclusion in their life. But Paul goes on to say in verse 15, he says, but he that is spiritual judges all things. Now, it's the same word that he used for discern back in verse 14. It means to scrutinize or to investigate, meaning this is that when you have the Spirit of God living in your heart, you're able to see the wisdom of God and you're able to watch it play out in your life and play out in your vision and in your mind and see how it works. And you'll be able to walk in it then and to experience the fruit of that. He says, he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. He can see it but nobody understands what it is that he sees. He's not understood. That's why when you share Christ with your unsaved family or friends or or, or co-workers, they look at you and they can't figure you out. They see that you're living a different way. They see that you have a peace that doesn't make sense, but they can't figure out why. It doesn't make sense to them. The world's wisdom brings results. God's wisdom bears fruit. And there's a world of difference between results and fruit. You can read the books and go to the seminars of the world and you can apply the things that the world teaches and you can get results within your life. You can do it as a parent. As a parent, you can learn to be a strong disciplinarian. You can learn to apply certain techniques to your kids to get them to submit and to obey and to do the things that you say. And if you do those things, you're going to get results, but it won't be fruit. Because as soon as your kids are outside of the reach of your authority or outside the boundaries of those methods, then those things are going to fail completely and you're going to have a problem on your hands. We've all seen that. Many of us have been those problems within our lives. As a boss, you can employ certain techniques, wisdom that's out there in the world, and you can demand respect from those that are underneath your authority. But it's not real respect, it's results, but it's not fruit. If you run a business, you can apply certain principles to that business, and you can make money, and you can show results. You can post earnings that don't actually reflect what's going on within the real structure of that company. But you're using wisdom, and you have a wise way of spinning numbers and facts, and you can produce results based upon the wisdom that you're employing. 
in ministry, you can apply worldly wisdom and you can get results. You could build a church. You could have a lot of people that come. You could get a lot of publicity and a lot of attention. And you could get a lot of people singing your praises. But is all of those, all of that and all of those results, are they just results based upon employing techniques or is it fruit? You say, what's the difference? Here's the difference. Is that when it's fruit within the life, the change comes from within. Your child that is obedient, that is subordinate, that is listening, they're doing it because of what's been sown into their heart through the love of Christ. Because as a parent, you're a servant leader and you wash feet like Jesus did. Because you compel them by a good example. And as you live out Christ before them, the Spirit of God produces a character within them and the life that they're living isn't because you're demanding it from them, but because there's something real being cultivated within their life and that will carry with them into adulthood and it will continue to flourish and grow even as fruit does. As a boss or the owner of a business, you can do things God's way and employ God's wisdom. And it might take longer because fruit always takes longer to grow than it does for you to produce results. But when you employ what God says and you live according to God's wisdom, then what comes out of it will be pure and it will be lasting and it will be real and it will have roots. When a ministry or our service for Christ is done according to God's wisdom, then the result might take longer and might not look as good as what we want or what the world is looking for or other churches are looking for. But what's born out is real and it's lasting and it's internal and it's not manufactured or plastic or outward. And so results and fruit are so different one from another and God is interested in bearing fruit within our lives, not in seeing simple results. Worldly wisdom produces results. God's wisdom produces fruit. And God desires that we would bear fruit within our lives. And thus, he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. You say, why is Paul bringing up all of this stuff about wisdom in the middle of a discussion about unity? The answer is because if you, as a Christian, diminish Christ or grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, or replace the pure Bible with the teachings of men, even pastors, then you cannot have the wisdom of God within your life. It is the consequence of what the Corinthians were doing in elevating men above Christ. Notice what he says at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. He says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. Paul is saying to them, even when I was among you, there were things that I wanted to share with you, things that would have been beneficial to you, but even at that time, you weren't in a spiritually mature enough state that you could handle hearing them. They would have gone in one ear and out the other. There's a problem in your demeanor, in your position, where your eyes are set so that you cannot experience this wisdom that God gives. One of the most dangerous and frightening things that can happen to a Christian, and it happens to Christians, is that you can carry spiritual infancy into the adult years of your Christian experience. Meaning you could be here tonight and you could be walking with the Lord for 20 years. It's 20 years since you gave your life to Christ, but yet you can still be a babe spiritually. 
possible. It's frightening, isn't it? In Hebrews chapter 5, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews was writing and so desperately wanted to expound upon this mysterious Melchizedek to those to whom he was writing. I mean, you say, who's Melchizedek? If you don't know, you should. Paul says, or whoever wrote it says, of whom, this Melchizedek, we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing that you are dull of hearing. For when for the time, the amount of time you've been saved, you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even to those who by reason of use has their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So it is possible for us to become infants or be infants in our Christian experience and completely miss the wisdom of God. And that's what was taking place within the Corinthian church and the reason why they were staying in an infant state and not experience the glory of God's wisdom Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, For you are yet carnal, fleshly, not spiritual. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not yet carnal? He says, The evidence that I have that you are not able to bear the wisdom of God within your life is that there's envying, strife, and divisions because you're following men as your connection to God. And you cannot, in that condition, experience the richness of God's wisdom that He wants to pour out within your life. That is true in Corinth, it is true in Calvary Chapel, it's true for every one of us that's here tonight that until you get your eyes on Jesus Christ exclusively, until you are daily, constantly filled with the Holy Spirit, asking God to reveal himself by his Spirit in your life and through his word, and until you're given to a habitual daily life of giving yourself to the word of God, line upon line, precept upon precept, Genesis to Revelation, year by year, moment by moment, meditating on the things of God, you will not experience the wisdom that God has for you. You say, well, do I need it? I've gone this long without it. Is it. How imperative is it that I experience it? Let me read to you just a little bit of scripture. This is what God has to say about it. Proverbs chapter two. My son, if you will receive my words... And hide my commandments with thee so that you incline your ear unto wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yea, if you cry after knowledge and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. He lays up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that gets understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver and the gain thereof than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things that you can desire are not to be compared unto her. 
Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone that retains her. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote you. She shall bring you honor when you do embrace her. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom cry? In understanding, put forth her voice. She stands in the top of high places, by the way in the places of the paths. She cries at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming in at the doors. Unto you, O men, I call. And my voice is to the sons of men. O you simple, that's King James for stupid. Understand wisdom. And you fools, be ye of an understanding heart. Hear, for I will speak of excellent things, and the opening of my lips shall be right things. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 11. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign. And princes decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. And finally, Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has builded her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has killed her beasts. She has mingled her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent forth her maidens. She cries upon the highest places of the city. Whoso is stupid, let him turn in hither. As for him that lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mingled. Forsake the foolish and live and go in the way of understanding. When you read the Proverbs, you come to the conclusion that the most valuable thing that you can have, second only to your salvation, is God's wisdom. Paul said to the Romans in chapter 11, verse 33, he said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. There is no greater glory that's been given to the Christian besides the person of Jesus Christ himself than the wisdom that God has laid up for you and I that we might walk in it and that we might live by it and that we might be blessed by it. And the way that we can receive the wisdom of God is that we know the person of Jesus Christ personally as Savior and Lord that our eyes are off of human leaders and on Jesus Christ himself and the daily filling with the Holy Spirit of God 
and the giving of ourselves to the things which the Holy Ghost teaches, which is the Word of God, and to continue in it. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Next week, as we conclude this section of Corinthians, we'll see the value and the purpose then of godly leaders as we finish it out. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we look into this pleading that you give to us as you declare so plainly in Scripture that you have something for us that perhaps we might be missing out on. You say that it's hidden and concealed, but yet ready to be revealed by your Holy Spirit and that it's been ordained unto our glory. And so our prayer tonight, God, is that if there is any area of our heart or any position of our eyes that is keeping us from experiencing all that you have for us in this life and through the wisdom of your ways, that you would make those proper adjustments within us, that we might have all that you have for us. So Father, would you please, even now, do a surgical work within us, that you would set our eyes upon Jesus Christ, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, and that you would stir up a hunger for the Word of God within our soul. May we walk with you in the way of understanding. And may we have your wisdom, Lord, that we might know you. And so we make this our prayer tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.